Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by The Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening, and that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Here to share her story today is Abby Anderson, who will help us explore the role of motivation in eating disorder recovery, which I'm so excited for us to talk about today because motivation comes up in a lot of different areas as it relates to recovery. So a bit about Abby. Abby recently graduated from business school and has started working a corporate job. She's passionate about mental health, yoga, and personal development. Abby was diagnosed with anorexia in the summer of 2018 after a long battle years prior and has experienced a series of ups and downs worth noting to anyone with an eating disorder or disordered eating. Her recovery is still evolving and her story contains examples of motivation and the lack thereof, society's influence on body image and seeking resilience in recovery even when you want to give up. Thanks so much for being here, Abby. We're so glad that you spent some time with us today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here as well. Fantastic. Well, let's dive in. You know, we know there's no denying eating disorder recovery is hard and it's possible, right? Really, really hard and possible. And because it's such a process, it can be continually hard. And people struggle with motivation along the way for all sorts of reasons. And, and we'll, of course, explore some of those today. But first, let's, let's trace a bit of your recovery process. So take us back to the earliest days of recovery. What did you imagine or expect recovery to be like then? So when I first kind of approached the idea of even getting treatment, it was very rock bottom moment, I would say, which is true for a lot of people. And I had had several friends kind of approach me about worrying that I had an eating disorder or something of the like, and I was completely in denial to just put it simply. I really truly did not see it at all. I had I mean, despite the fact that we have the world at our fingertips with Google, I never once like looked up, you know, my behavior, my symptoms, my anything. And then I just had a, I had a rock bottom day. I mean, it'd been a rock bottom several months, but a day where I had finally hit this point where it felt like I needed to make a change or it just wasn't worth it anymore. And that was a really scary feeling to have. And I texted one of my friends who was the one, my best friend who had reached out to me like countless times throughout the past couple of years and just like told her she was right. And she knew exactly what I was talking about. And it was actually that day I was on a walk, which I always did. I was a sophomore in college and I would always like go on walks around my apartment. And I listened, found by the grace of who knows what, a podcast called Recovery Warrior, which I'm sure some people know about. And that was the first one I had ever listened to. And it was like verbatim what I was going through. Like, of course, the first episode I ever listened to. And I'm like, oh my God, like this is one, not that crazy that I'm feeling this way. And like now being in the situation I've been in for several years, I, I know so many people feel alone. And it was the first time that I was like, this stuff that I'm doing, like, yes, it's not healthy, but it's not crazy either. And it makes sense. And like all of this stuff just kind of started seeping through the cracks. So I listened to that podcast. I texted my friend and then from there unfolded a couple of weeks. I was like in finals sophomore year. And it was like, it was actually the day after my golden birthday, the day after I turned 20 that I started treatment like full time. So I had gone to the doctor right after finals were over. And then it was like, I want to say a week in between my first thing and like entering treatment. So it was pretty fast. And I remember in the beginning 
back to your question that I was extremely exhausted just in general. And like, I had hit this point where there was a long time and like, I've experienced this now since being in recovery where like you're in an area that seems it's not fun and maybe not sustainable, but you're not like, you're not struggling so much that you can't keep doing it. And at this point I was struggling so much. I was like, I can't keep doing it. So when I entered treatment, I was what I always told my dietitian and therapist at the time, like their ideal client, because I was just like, I would do anything. I wasn't the person who was, you know, resisting the meal plans or resisting the therapy. Like I wanted more therapy. I wanted to understand. I wanted to fix it because I was so exhausted of the way my life had been. So I feel like I was extremely motivated in the beginning, maybe not physically or energetically because I was very depleted in so many ways, but like mentally I was ready. And even though it was very, very hard. And I remember like, you know, days where it didn't feel like I could do it, or I was so afraid of gaining weight or whatever it was, but I was extremely motivated to continue because I knew that like, I knew what it felt like. And I was close enough to that time period. Like it was still so fresh in my brain, remembering my day to day, remembering how I felt and et cetera, that I didn't want that again. And I'm sure this will come up throughout the episode, but like, I think the further we get away from that, the more we romanticize what it was actually like, which is something that's been super pivotal in my like ups and downs, because the more time that passes, you forget a lot of the bad stuff. So I think I was super motivated in the beginning and I dove headfirst into everything. Yeah. So that, I would say that pretty much summarizes the beginning. Yeah. There's so many things that strike me in what you said, the, the last piece about sort of diving in, we know that with the, you know, with all the, the temperament research and the brain research around eating disorders, that one of the temperament traits that often people with eating disorders have is that like persistence, let's get this done kind of trait. And so yeah. that can feel, can be remarkably helpful to, to pivot that from having the eating disorder hijack it pivoted into recovery and it can be really helpful. And it, uh, it really, the, the romanticizing strikes me as, is so something that I've, I, I realize that I've heard so frequently that, that it is, it's hard to, to, uh, not have that early part become sort of hazy and, uh, romanticized as you look back and, and as things progress, which of course we'll talk about that in some ways we remember some of the hard things we've gone through as people with eating disorders, isn't it sort of strange that sometimes we don't remember how bad yeah. it is in the eating disorder? Like those, those memories for some reason fade and then we dance a little closer to them and we're like, oh yeah, but it is fascinating how they, they fade a bit. I remember, remember too that even though I had that motivation, I remember like very vividly worrying that like one day I was going to wake up whatever time that was and regret getting help. So like that was one of my biggest fears. And most of that was related to my physical body. Like I was so tired and so ready to eat more and to do the things I needed to do to be healthy. Um, and I had also found out a lot of things. Like I said, I had never looked up any of my symptoms or known what I was doing to my body. So after I'd gone to like the medical part at the Emily program and learned like, you know, just about my heart and my bones and, and things that I never even considered that definitely scared me into wanting to get help. But at the same time, I was afraid of not, you know, the next day or even a week later, but it was like, what's going to happen in six months? Like I was so afraid of what my life was going to be like, because I just didn't, I didn't know any other way. And I felt like I had lost so much. And I tell, I've told this story to many people, but I think it was within the first week I was there, my therapist or someone was like, what, 
what makes you happy? Like, what do you like to do? And I literally didn't know how to answer the question. And there was all these, like I had my passion still. I knew what they were, but I had no energy to do them. And I was just like flat. My friends, one of my friends in particular has compared me to when I was like starting to recover, she compared me to a frozen bag of peas because she said I was finally dethawing and like I would cry more and like had more emotions. And she's like, she was saying it, of course, in a good way. But I always think about that too. So it's very cliche because anyone who's been to the Emily program knows that they say recovery is not linear. And I'm sure people at other treatment centers as well. But that was like the first thing I was told and it didn't make sense to me at the time. But now I'm like, yeah, you could say that like every single day. And I've told so many people that too. And I also think in the beginning, I was, I just looked at it as such a physical thing. Like, okay, my body needs to change because I'm really sick and like I'm unhealthy. What I, what I was striving for in terms of health actually made me unhealthy and trying to understand that was super vital, but, but it was also extremely psychological and you know, your body catches up a lot before your mind does. So I think that was the hardest and most like impactful part of it. Yeah, absolutely. There's something in that beautiful. And then I want to come back to, you know, when your body catches up and you're, and psychologically, you're not quite there yet. We can, that particular time people can start to second guess like, Oh, I'm fine now. Am I fine now? What do I do now? So I want to come back to that. But I also want to mention something that you said earlier to highlight the, the really the importance and the, and the beauty of, of what your friend did to keep saying, I'm worried about you, I'm worried about you, I'm worried about you. And I, I got to believe you probably didn't say, uh, yeah, I'm worried about me too. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out what to do to help me. I'm guessing you probably said something more along the lines of like, no, I'm fine. Exactly. And we talk about that all. She's my best friend. She has been for like eight years now. And we talk about it all the time. I mean, I've explicitly told her thank you for saving my life because I do believe that she did and like I credit her for that all the time it was also very difficult for her because she had a best friend who was not there you know just not myself and thank god that she stuck around and I'm so thankful for her but yeah every time and she'll say it now I don't remember to be honest most of our conversations from that time I don't even remember them but obviously she does and our, our whole friend group does and essentially from what I was told, like I just completely denied it, which is so not like me either because now like, and people will come to me now if they're concerned about something or whatever. And my initial reaction, I mean, there's probably always a little bit of shame wrapped up in it, but my initial reaction is always like, you know, why do you think that? Or what are you noticing? Or what do you think I should do? As opposed to like, I'm fine and stop or ignoring them or whatever. Like it couldn't be more different because even if I still have struggles, like I have gotten a lot of myself back and like, that's the friend that like they know and whatever. And I've always been a very open person, but the eating disorder, I couldn't care less. I literally could not care less, which is just, it's sad, but it's scary and it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's so well said. It's scary and it makes sense. So many things that happen in the eating disorder make sense and they, they, they aren't right and they somehow make sense. But I think it is to, to highlight that the effort of friends and family members to keep saying, I'm concerned, I'm concerned and not give up because it, it really can exactly like you're saying can save a life. That even if somebody says, no, I'm fine. You keep coming back because you know, they're not fine. And to your point, like when we're, when we're actually okay and somebody says something that doesn't make sense to us, we do exactly what you say you do now. Like, well, tell me more about that. And, and I want to hear more. And what do you think I should do versus like, nope, you're wrong. I'm fine. 
I, I tell people that all the time that if they approach somebody and they get that like, no, I'm fine, you're probably onto something, right? That yeah. It's, uh, it's really important. So your story illustrates that so well. I think too that it's important to say, and like obviously all parents are very different, but just with the coming back to it thing, my parents have told me since then, I mean, a couple things. I, I believe that they they always want to see the best in their kid, which is true, but in in that they also can be blind to some things or not want to, I mean, I've had a complicated relationship with my parents off and on, but they obviously love me and wanted the best for me. If anything would have happened to me, it would have crushed them. Yet they did very little in terms of forcing me to do something different. And they saw me, you know, like they did see what I looked like and to the objective eye, it wasn't good. And because I was their daughter and granted I made tons of excuses, so it's not their fault by any means. I totally downplayed everything and they didn't know what to do. No one in my family has suffered from an eating disorder. So that also makes it very hard. They didn't have any experience. They didn't know what was going on or how to help. Like, of course they made comments and were like, you should eat more, you should whatever. But anyone with an eating disorder also knows that those comments can be motivating to just continue what you're doing. So you want to like have patience after the fact, I feel like with knowing that, but sometimes your family, it aren't going to be the people who do notice or who do pry in the same way because they either know too much or too little. And the continuance I would recommend, I mean, if there's ever, if there's a parent listening to this right now and their kid does like, don't stop, definitely don't stop, but also be careful about the lens you come at it from. Sometimes it takes someone else for you to listen than your parents. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, probably in, in lots of areas, right? <laughs> that's uh, as a as a parent, I think that's definitely true. <laughs> so so let's go back to that sort of, you know, what I what I would characterize as sort of that you know ebb and flow, where you're you know physically you're feeling one way, emotionally you're feeling another. Motivation can shift in, in some of those same ways and and get kind of complicated, and and in some ways isn't part of that not linear process of recovery. So take us. Now to, you know, you, you're leaving treatment. What was your, where was your motivation level then? And, and how did it ebb and flow in, in the time after that? Yeah. So I think, like I had said, when I was actually in treatment and in the beginning, it was all going very well, as well as something like that can go. And I had really like dove into recovery just in general. Like that was kind of my whole life. My friends were amazing. And they, they were also kind of giving me the space in the sense of this is your time to heal. And like, I was, I mean, I was exhausted, you know, always doing therapy, doing whatever. And I was listening to podcasts. Like it was my job. I was reading all these books. Like I just wanted to like, I think I was so much of me just wanted to understand. Cause I was, I was so confused and again, had spent years in this disorder without actually knowing it. And so I was very into all the things that basically was recommended to me to do to try and help. And that was all really good. I said, I mean, there was obviously times during the first couple of months of treatment that were very hard. I definitely struggled with digestion stuff and that always kind of set me back just because it was something that I was dealing with. And after I left, I left because I started my junior year of college. So it was pretty much in tandem with that. And I, was doing, I went from IDP to um, outpatient programming. So I was still there for like three hours every day. And then 
I had stopped when I was starting school and I would say that unfortunately it didn't take long for a lot of like the good habits that were made to be broken. And again, without really noticing it. So it wasn't that I was like, okay, it's time to lose weight or okay, it's time to X, Y, Z. But I will say during my entire time in treatment, I mean, I was given the, I was given the order, if you will, not to exercise at all. And like hadn't worked out all summer at all, which was, has always been a pretty big part of my life and definitely a part of the eating disorder. And then I, so I started to once college started again, because I was in the environment that for the past two years, like, of course I worked out, like I went to class and I walked to class and I worked out like it was a part of my life. And so I started to do that again, which is interesting because, you know, a lot of studies and unfortunate diet culture these days think and say that working out is, is helps with your self-confidence and makes you feel better and whatever. But looking back when I started to work out was when I started to one, notice my body more two be more critical and three, like judge myself more. And I, you know, didn't notice that at the time, but of course I do now. So once I started doing that, then I just feel like it was easy to slip back into routines. And it was, for me, it was a lot more restriction than quote unquote over-exercise, but more that the exercise wasn't okay for someone eating the amount that I was eating. So that kind of crept back. I think the more, I always call it, like when I talk to people about it, like the voice, because I don't necessarily associate my eating disorder as like a full on other person. I was never the patient who like named their eating disorder, which I think can be super helpful. I thought about it for a while and then I was like, no, it's not going to work for me. But um, I definitely feel like there's a voice that differs greatly from like who I know myself to be. And it's more just like my unhealthy versus my healthy voice. So that's how I differentiate it. And the more that I engaged in anything that was like pro eating disorder, the more that voice got loud. And I've always been the person who, once I start something, it's like, if I am, you know, eating dessert every day, like I should be, and then I don't one day, then I'm like, well, I probably shouldn't the next day. Cause I didn't yesterday. So it's stuff like that, that just built up. And I think college is hard enough for any human, but then you add an eating disorder on top of it. I do not think that college is a suitable environment for recovery in any way. Like it doesn't matter if you're, it doesn't matter, like nothing, like it doesn't matter if you're in a sorority, it doesn't matter if you're any gender, any, anything, like it's just not. And I had a lot of people tell me that too, including my, my therapist and my dietitian. like they thought if I was going into like a work environment or something else that it might be different. And I can attest to that now being in the real world, like there's such a, broader range of body types and ages and what people eat. And college was just really not ideal for that. And I think that was a a contributor to the kind of inevitable downscale. And then I did go back to IOP when I was in my junior year of college. Yeah, that that all makes sense that that's, you know, that there's so much sociocultural and just environmental pressure and of of just living and learning and being at college and then to have all the other pieces of appearance and all that stuff. It's just so, there's just a lot. Right? There's so much coming at us. It strikes me too, the, um, the, the, you spoke of sort of like the, the other voice that, that makes a lot of sense that right people do it different ways. They, they name a whole other uh, name readings or something, or just recognize that there's something else. 
and it it gets uh, strong quickly. It's not like it just creeps up. It just like bam, it's back. It's right there, uh, and so it, and it's pretty loud and and persistent, and it sort of hijacks all those genetic factors that we you know know can predispose us to an eating disorder, and then make it pretty loud. How uh, as we sort of get into into kind of now or or from then to now, what are the some of the really common barriers to motivation that you can think about that you're like, oh yeah, that's tricky for me. And that really kind of pulled me down a little bit and made my motivation a little bit less uh, present. One of the biggest things that I've probably spent like the last six months, maybe even to a year talking to my therapist who I still see about is the barrier being dealing with emotions and like my reality that my eating disorder allowed me to ignore or push away. So that could mean so many different things, but I just, even though look like if I tried to remember specifically, like, yes, I wasn't happy during my eating disorder. It made me extremely numb to a lot of feelings that like a normal, healthy human feels, which is part of life. And that's just how it goes. But because I was like, so determined to live my life a certain way. I said no to a lot of things. And like, I'm a people pleaser. So now me being in a healthy body and a healthy, better state, I hate saying no to things. And I don't like to disappoint people. But when my eating disorder was my first priority, that was easy because I was like, no, I'm not going to go out with you. Like, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to whatever. Like, it was just not even a question. And now it's like, I have to make those decisions because the eating disorder is not making them for me. So I think that was probably one of the biggest things. And then also the, not necessarily just the eating disorder, but the body that I, that I was striving for slash got to in the eating disorder, I wrapped up into my success in general. And I've always been a huge perfectionist and did well in school and all of that. And for the longest time, because it's kind of started at the end of high school, but for most of high school, I had a very healthy relationship with food and exercise. And I was still a perfectionist then about grades and about like, I was a very clean person, like organized, just kind of whatever. And then somewhere, and I don't know if it was the onset of college and uncertainty, you know, we could talk for eight hours about what caused it. But I think that somewhere along the lines, my body also became one of those things to perfect because I don't remember in middle school. I mean, I remember having body image thoughts and stuff like that, but in high school, it was so much more about my life than my body. Like I would have, I think most people do have days where they don't like the way they look or something doesn't fit right or whatever. But I was like, I'm not going to not go out to eat with my friends. Like I want to be social, you know? So that took precedence over anything. And somewhere along the lines, it just didn't anymore. And my body not only became one of the projects to work on, but also the thing that I thought was responsible for my perfection in other areas. And I had talked a lot about that in treatment too, because they asked me when I first got there, it was like the first, I honestly think day that I'd met with my therapist, she was questioning how I'd done in school. She was concerned that maybe my last semester was like really bad. And I was like, oh, I got a 4.0. And she was like, are you serious? Like, she's like, I don't know how you manage to do that given the state that you're in right now. And I, I mean, granted, it was literally the only thing that I did, but I thought, I was honestly convinced that if I was starting to gain weight, I wouldn't care about my grades anymore and that I would get bad grades and I wouldn't get a good job and no one would like me and no boys would think I was attractive. Like I thought everything was dependent on that. Mind you, in the eating disorder, 
I didn't want to see my friends. I had no interest in a boyfriend at all because that sounded like way too much work. And I, yeah, like all these things that I thought were connected to this body, this body wasn't even allowing me to do. And that's just, it's insane. So I think that was a huge, huge part of it. And the overall, like just not knowing who you are without it was a barrier too, because you wrap up so much of yourself and compare who you are now to the body you had before. That's a big barrier for me to this day. So it is, it is hard to, I mean, you illustrate so, so poignantly really that what the eating disorder does sort of convinces you this set of things are important and, and blocks out all the other distractions that are like regular life and just makes it seem so important to do those things. And no wonder then it's so scary to change the things you're doing when somebody comes along, a well-meaning clinician like me comes along and says, hey, here's a, here's a meal plan. Let's think about eating this and, and he, let's talk about your feelings and let's just, you know, discover those, you know, the eating disorder is like, absolutely not. That is so complicating. I got a job here to do and I got to get good grades and, and let's just stay on this track. So it does get overwhelming. The range of things that normal life includes uh, that the eating disorder doesn't want it to include. So you, you speak to that so, so well, you know, one, Mo, you know, one factor in motivation can be our environment. And, you know, we know that just a change in location can't just fix an eating disorder. But did you have changes in your environment that felt like it would make it better or worse or some environments that were more nurturing and full of support and encouragement and, you know, understanding and, and others that weren't as full of support and understanding? What, what have you learned about the different environments that you've lived in? Well, I already spoke to college in general, so I'll just leave that one out because I think we understood that. I think two big things. One, when it's a physical environment, I will speak to that. And then also just the emotional environment that you're in. So I have really good friends and really good family friends that have been super vital to my recovery. I think if you're healing from an eating disorder, the environment in which you surround yourself with as far as people if they have good relationships with food, that's super helpful. Um, and most of my friends, I mean, I, again, most girls are not, they're not unaware of just how difficult this life can be right now with body image and stuff. But I do have just a lot of really good friends who see that life is about a lot more than food. And also, like I said, some other good family members and whatnot. Um, my parents just don't know that much about eating disorders and I don't know, didn't take a ton of time to really understand them. So I've, my recovery has been on the backs of a lot of other different people, but I'm thankful for that. And as far as the physical environment, I studied abroad in Austria when I was a junior. So this was like, I had, was in treatment the summer before my junior year. And then I had a semester of school and then I left for Austria. And that was definitely the happiest that I've been in college and again, because it wasn't really in a college campus situation like we have in the U.S. And I think one of the biggest things, too, was that no one there knew me when I was sick, when I went there. And they didn't know what I looked like when I was sick. They didn't have anything to compare me to. And then a huge part of it is that in Europe, the food culture is extremely different. And there's also less gyms. Like the emphasis on food and exercise in general is just so much less. And you know, 
social engagements and quality time is so much more important there. People also walk everywhere, which is great, but the emphasis isn't on that. It's just like our life is, you know, semi-active. We go to the store every day and whatever, but it's like working out is, it was such an afterthought. It was never worked into their day. Like this is the time that I go to the gym. Like they, it was weird, you know? And that was like probably the most beautiful experience I could have had to like see what life was like in that way. It was also not an excuse, but like an opportunity at the perfect time to not be restrictive with food at all. Because I was like, I'm here. I'm spending money to be here. I'm not going to like not try pizza in Italy. I'm not going to not have this, you know, great looking pastry at this place. I'll never be at again. And I wish that I could, you know, just say that every day now too. But like, it's a lot easier when you're in a foreign country and everything, you know, So it was just a great environment to totally shift my perspective on food and take a break from, you know, we did walk everywhere, but it's like, it was very natural and it was just, it was really beautiful. And I think too, that my eating disorder was a coping mechanism. Like it is, I believe it is for a lot of people. And part of me now looking back questions, if the reason that it was easier for me there too, not just because of the culture in general, but also that because I wasn't home, I was not as stressed out. I had, like I have mentioned, I have some complicated family stuff and also the college environment was different. I was meeting only new people. Like I was choosing what I wanted to do every day, choosing who to spend my time with. We had school still, but it was like, we're in a different country. And like the biggest thing we have to worry about is like scheduling a flight to another country. Like that's so, you know, just what a blessing. And my stress levels were very, very minuscule in comparison. So I felt like I didn't have this urge to restrict or lose weight or anything like that. I was just happy. And I did also meet someone there that I ended up dating during the time that I was there. And that helped a lot too, because he was just, I don't know, gave me the opportunity. It was the first time I was really with someone after getting healthier. And that was a good validation that like someone can love me and someone can find me beautiful in like the body that I should be in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I hear uh, some really beautiful strains in there about like, you know, being in Austria, it sounds like you got to be you, like you got to be the you you want to be and you got to connect with you and learn who that was and how that person wanted to live and what was appealing to that person. And, and it turns out that person is you. So that's, that's awesome. But, but I think those kind of, change in environments can be so amazing for, for all of the reasons that you've illustrated. But it really comes down to somehow finding that space of like, how can I be me in a world that, you know, that's kind of complicated. And how do I be the, you know, the me I want to be? That's very well said. Because I think too, I started an internship right when I got home from Austria. And I was like, I mean, that's a job that I actually have now. So like, I love it, but it's very busy, like extremely busy, very corporate culture. And it's actually a a German company. So it's kind of funny because there is connections to Europe. However, it was like, couldn't be more different from my time in Austria to starting this job. And when I was there, like you said, I kind of realized who I wanted to be and who I was. And I had always associated myself so much with like typical Western busy culture, like busy, busy, busy. And I still do that a lot. A lot of my friends are like, can you stop doing things and just like relax for a little bit? I still do that, but I thrive and my body thrives off slow living, off like a lot of sleep, slow moving, slow meals, being very intentional. Like that's when I have the least stress. That's when I'm the happiest. 
and the need to be busy stems from like a need to prove myself, not from this innate desire to like never slow down. So I definitely did learn a lot about myself and I hope, I hope in the years to come that we can take some notes from Europe and slow down because <laughs> I think there, that's a whole other story, but it was, a, it was a great experience. That's awesome. So how, it strikes me that that, that that incredibly powerful experience you had probably does influence things that bring you motivation now and trying to match that busy life with finding the times to have some slower living. How do you, how do, you do it now? How do you balance things now? How do you experience that sort of keeping yourself you and being in the life you're in right now and keeping your motivation for wellness going? I think a lot of it is, like I said, the people you surround yourself with, because if I, the more isolated, I mean, I love to be alone. I definitely am an extroverted introvert. So like I do need to be alone, but I have noticed that the more social I am, as long as it's with the right people, the more the voice and like the bad behavior is kind of crowded out. Cause like I've said before, you just like don't have time for it. Like if I'm going to prioritize my eating disorder, that very well will take over my life. And I can't have the other things that bring me happiness. So it's like a lot of reminders. I feel like it's, I'm a huge mantra person, mindfulness, like meditation. That's a very big part of my life now. And I think the biggest motivation is like self-assurance and reminders. And that can be like very tedious. It can be draining, but if you don't believe it, like you have to believe it yourself. So if you can't depend on other people to be telling you or it won't stick. So I think finding whatever, you know, works for you or what, sits well with you and makes you want to show up in your life is the most important. And I have, I mean, I have so many reminders in my phone, so many books, like I've said, I think it's the making sure not to romanticize the eating disorder. And even if that means we don't want to drudge up the past, but even if that means reminding yourself or making a list of all the things that you lost, which is a pretty big thing they have you do in treatment. And then the things that you gained, I think, recovery is just a lot more simple and fluid than life with an eating disorder is. And back to the Western culture thing, like my eating disorder could, you could say fits in very well with that, like busy, go, go, go. Don't take a rest. Don't pay attention to yourself. What are feelings type of thing. And me being the person that I want to be and how I want to show up is the opposite of that. So surrounding yourself with people that also embody those values, I think is really great. I've like made several relationships with people who are also in a similar state that I am where it's like, they're a lot better, but they have a little white ways to go in terms of where they want to end up in their life. And that helps just to feel like you're not alone. And then also being, I don't know if friends with, or just having relationships with people who are a little bit older than you has been very helpful for me doesn't matter, you know, gender or anything like that, but just people who have a little bit more perspective on life and then like diversifying your, like not just the friends that you get information from, but like diversifying your life in general. So like who are the people you're hanging out with and like, what do they bring you? What are you doing when you're alone? What are you doing when you're social? Like the more that you can bring into your life, again, the less room you have for those unhealthy things. And I have tried to walk the fine line of not overcrowding it because again, you don't want to be just like, go, go, go in another way. But I think that's been helpful. And then even though it's a very overused term, loving yourself or self-love is probably the most important because, and that's something I still struggle with all the time. And it's not even only related to the eating disorder, but if you love yourself, like you don't want to hurt yourself. And one of the 
things that's like brought me to tears many times is thinking about yourself as a child. So trying to do some like inner child work or inner healing and like being there for yourself, which is something that no one talks about. Cause when we want comfort, we're not usually like, I'm just going to go like take a second to myself and like sit in a blanket and like be there for myself. Like no one does that, but that's really the only way you're actually going to have sustainable long-term like self-assurance or validation. And I'm literally just learning that. Like this has been the past couple of months of me trying to like reach out less and reach inwards more because it's great. And I, I have amazing friends and amazing family who will give me that, but that's only an instant gratification. And if, you don't believe it about yourself, that's hard. And especially with an eating disorder or in recovery, you can't be doing it for other people. And that's with any addiction or anything that you want to heal from. Like you can use it as motivation, but at the end of the day, like you won't continue and it won't be as impactful if you're not also doing it for yourself. And then lastly, I think participating in things that like re- established all the beliefs that I know I need to have for recovery. So like I actually started my own podcast, which has been super helpful, not just about recovery, but like it's something that like I care about and that I can put my energy towards. I've been reading way more than I ever have, like doing all the things again that I like didn't have energy for in the eating disorder keeps me motivated because I know I won't do them if I get sick again. So I write a lot. I have a blog and I'm like very interested in publishing a book and like trying to get on that. So just moving forward in things that bring me a lot of joy and, and knowing that if I get sick or if I give into the eating disorder, those things won't be in my life anymore. And not in a threatening way, but just in a positive, like, what would you rather have way? Because your healthy self would much rather have all of these things than one body type that doesn't allow you to, to live your life. Yeah. Ultimately those things really hold a lot more promise than, than any promise of a specific body type, like you're saying, can hold. That the eating disorder can be really convincing, but it is just really no match for, for real life and the, the range of, of experiences and feelings and relationships that recovery offers that, that you illustrate so, so beautifully. I, I love the, um, your comments about finding, kind of finding solace in yourself, being able to connect in yourself, that connecting outside is incredibly important. And we always have ourselves with us, right? We're always there, uh, whether we find that helpful or not. And I think that the things that you're learning around how to self-soothe or how to comfort yourself or just be there with yourself are so important. That's such a great concept. So one of the other things too you, you spoke to is um, feeling alone. And, and I often think, and, and we often ask people this question, like if you think of yourself uh, a, a, an amount of time ago when you were feeling alone and like nobody understood this eating sort of thing or could possibly understand what you were going through or you just felt alone like so many people do and so many people listening right now might feel like yeah yeah that's that's all fine and well I'll be great for you I'm glad that you know I'm glad that that worked out but that's never going to happen for me and 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 I'm alone and and I just can't hear it and part of that is because the eating sort of doesn't want them to hear it but what what advice or or words of motivation do you have for somebody who might be feeling really unmotivated or really alone or ambivalent even about recovery? What would you, would you tell them? I've talked with my therapist a fair share because I feel like she's kind of asked me the same thing, but more so phrasing it in like, what makes you so different than all these other people who have been able to, and like been able to find this or whatever. And, and I think we all want 
not want to, we are all forced to by an eating disorder think that like we are different because that is what keeps it alive. And being able to one, separate yourself from whatever the eating disorder is. So whether that means thinking about who you were before it happened or thinking about the type of person that you want to be, there's a reason why you think everything that is positively reinforcing your behaviors. And if you or someone else, if you're not able to, is identifying what you're doing as an eating disorder, I think the best thing I ever did and the hardest thing I ever did was take my hands off the steering wheel and give it to someone else, give it to a professional because they did know what they were doing. And those you know, months that I was in treatment that, yes, I may have slid back after I left, but during those times when I was really truly listening to people who knew what they were talking about, I was doing very well. So I think that is one thing to keep in mind. Like, even though we are, we have autonomy over our body, we don't when we have an eating disorder. So if you are struggling with that, you have to accept that you weren't making the decisions, even though you're in your same body, which is super frustrating. That was one of the, like the in denial slash, I don't know, just infuriating parts of my recovery was the fact that like I felt or knew like I'm the same person or you think you are like, this is my mind, my body. There's no physical like other person that is here with me, but your brain does change. And like, it is a mental disease and you're not expected to recover or get better from that by yourself. So being able to just know you have it is the first part. I spent years thinking that nothing was quote quote unquote wrong with me. So that would be the first thing. And then I would say, try to find the things or something that you know you will not be able to do unless you get better. Something that like is so important to you. And, you know, if you need to like write reminders all over your wall or like get a tattoo, like whatever it takes to see something every day that makes you remember why you're doing it and like go back. So you're not romanticizing it, but go back to be like, I never want to be in that place again because I know how bad it was. And the more that you can be forward focused into thinking like, this is what I want for my life and I'm not being able or I'm not in the position right now to achieve those things, it will, it will help you to, to make a change. And that's the whole internal motivation thing. Cause if you don't believe it for yourself and you're only doing it because your mom is worried about you or whatever, it's not going to stick or at least not as well as it, as it could. And also to pay attention to the values of the eating disorder and kind of how I said, like all these things that I thought my eating disorder was connected to, I wasn't actually doing or able to do. So really like determine those things for you, write it down or just anything you can to like set to separate yourself from these behaviors that you're doing. And for me, it was always about the science. Like the most motivating thing for me to recover was knowing like what the eating disorder was doing to my body, why it was unhealthy, the ways in which diet culture has contributed to my beliefs and knowing that like, this isn't come from me. This is not myself telling me to do something. This is the world that I grew up in. This is the messages we receive and just, yeah, really trying to dig to the bottom of it. And it's obviously a little bit easier to do things you don't want to do when there's like really solid evidence as to why you should. So whether that's taking a break from exercise or eating more than you were or anything, anything that, that you need to do to get better. Yeah. And just really listening to the people who know what they're talking about. Cause there's a reason they have this job. My therapist always says like, there's a reason that treatment centers exist. You know, there's a reason why this all is here. It's why we're here right now. Like it wouldn't exist if it wasn't such a problem and also don't underestimate it. And 
find someone who can validate the challenge because you can't do it alone. That's for sure. And you need, you need people who understand, but who will also push you to make changes. Oh, so well said. Abby, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and sharing your story. I just think there's so many words of wisdom that you've shared uh, that will, people will be thinking about in the, the days after they listen. So thank you so much for spending time with us. Yeah, it was great. I want to, you know, do anything I can in this realm to kind of give back to what I felt like was given to me. And this is something that even though I hope to continually get better and stronger from, I will always, you know, look at it as a big part of my life. And it's reframed a ton of my values and how I hope to raise my future children and everything. So it's, it's a huge part of who I am and I want to be involved in the community. So it's been great to talk to you guys. Fantastic. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at EMILY Program. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.